Hello, I'm Paula Jenkins, a transformative life coach and retreat leader. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, a podcast that talks about the stories of people following their hearts, finding work that lights them up, and looking at how joy plays a part in their journey. To learn more about this podcast, head on over to jumpstartyourjoy.com. And if you want to find out more about me, you can go to my website at paulajenkinsonline.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 23 of Jumpstart Your Joy. First, a special welcome to all of our new listeners. I know that a lot of new people are listening to this podcast, and I just want to welcome you from the bottom of my heart. Today, we have an interview with David Ramos. He is an author of five books, and he has another book coming out just next week, so on February 16th of 2016. He and I get to talk about the Old Testament. And what you maybe don't know about me is that I absolutely love the Old Testament. And that's actually what I went back to school to get my master's degree in, what is now many moons ago. So it was a real treat to get to talk to David about one of my really favorite topics. And you'll get to hear us nerd out big time over over the Old Testament or the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the many names of this great book. If you're listening along and you want to check out any of the resources, the links that we're talking about, you can head over to the website, which is at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash David Ramos, and you'll get all of the information right there. If you want to subscribe, you can head over to iTunes or Stitcher pay special attention because David is offering a giveaway for three of his books and you'll be able to get that link in the interview and then again at the end and you're going to want to listen till the very end because I have a special announcement about next week's guest which is an unexpected and prehistoric visitor. One note on this particular episode There were some sound quality issues after I went back to review it. So you'll hear in some places that I've cut in, I actually had to re-record a few of the questions and my comments in a couple spots, and it'll probably be pretty obvious, but I just wanted to call that out because it does sound a little bit different than my usual sound quality. So now, without further ado, I bring to you the conversation with David Ramos. So welcome to the show. Today we have an interview with David Ramos. He is an author. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, would you like to tell us about who you are and what you do? Sure thing. Um, so my name is David Ramos. I'm born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm currently engaged to a beautiful young woman named Brianna. My passion is writing in the Old Testament, so we'll kind of talk about how those intertwine. Currently, I'm working at Tri-C, which is a local community college, and I am the library supervisor, which is great because I have access to pretty much any book I could imagine. What were your early sparks of joy as a kid? So I was thinking about this, and the answers I came up with have nothing to do with what I'm doing now, (laughs) but... (laughs) I'd say my my early sparks of joy were dinosaurs and race cars. I just was fascinated by Jurassic Park and Formula One, and I had posters and T-shirts, and those were what my life revolved around, is going to museums to see dinosaurs or waking up early to watch race car on Sunday. Like That defined my life for a long time. 
Yeah. Were you a NASCAR fan or something? What, some other kinds um, of race car? <laughs> so mostly Formula One. Um, okay. Because they have, in my opinion, they have more interesting tracks than NASCAR. It's not just a circle. It's like lots of turns and stuff. Um, and then rally racing, which is where they drive along mountains and there's like the actual danger of them falling off the mountain. So I think that's awesome too. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. NASCAR's fascinating from kind of like a brand spirit. Like, I don't know. I worked on them in advertising. And oh, you did? Fasc- <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. Like how the brands get involved and yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. They have some very interesting fans. So they do very um, vivacious fans. You started college as a mechanical engineer, but it seems that you ran into a professor that changed everything for you. Would you tell us about that professor and what happened? Sure thing. So my interest in race cars and everything like that kind of set me on the path to, well, I'll learn science and math and I'll get into this industry and kind of find out where I fit. And that was the path I was on until I came into contact with uh, Professor Miller. And he was a professor of Old Testament. And I had no idea what to expect. And I wasn't really expecting much because it's an Old Testament class. You're like, okay, I'll do the work that I need to do to pass this. But um, he just had this way of opening up the characters and the stories in a way I had never heard or seen before. Um, Like one example, he spent 20 minutes talking about his father and his father was his hero. He was in the Navy, built the house that they lived in. This guy was just, you know, all American, amazing dad and everything. And the professor is like almost in tears at the end of the story. And then he ties it in to David and his kingship and how that fell apart. And I had never seen anyone make the connection that made the characters in the Old Testament so human and so real. And by the end of that class, you know, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And I was just hooked. I was like, there's something in this Old Testament that people aren't seeing, but this guy is seeing it. And I want to see what he sees. And that just kind of started the love affair from then on. That is amazing. Because it sounds like Professor Miller was at heart, maybe a storyteller. I totally agree. That is really cool how someone can bring something alive. In that class or in those in those early classes, were there any of the stories that you just loved the most? Well, I, I'm pretty sure he's responsible for why Abraham became one of my favorite characters, too. Because <laughs> Abraham yeah. is just like, this guy who you don't really know anything about him. And then you're thrown into his story. And he's thrown into this gigantic story of salvation for the whole world. And he has all this weight of the world on him. And the first thing you see him do is lie about being married to his wife. And you're just like, this is not how the Bible should read. Yeah. And it's, it's just such a beautiful picture of our lives. I think the old Testament helps us see the human condition such a better way than any other book that's out there. It just shows like, this is who God is and this is the expectations and this is how we will never meet those expectations. And that's okay. That can be beautiful. You can have this beautiful story and have it be intensely not good in a lot of ways, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. Yes. Because there's a lot there that isn't what the authors didn't gloss over and make, 
make, especially the introduction stories or the, or how we get to know some of the characters. There's no, I mean, maybe they are glossing it over at some level, which would be interesting as well. But like, we aren't seeing like the glamour, I'm using air quotes, like the glamour magazine version of Moses or Abraham. We're seeing, yes. you know, we're seeing someone who's out in the fields or like yeah, <laughs> lying is, to God. Like, that's not, yeah, this is that's not, not the, the Facebook record. version. So, 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 yeah. that, so why do you love the Old Testament too? Because I heard that that's one of your things. It's interesting because I think I love it in part because of the history and I love the, I love stories of transformation. And so I think each of these stories, you know, kind of follows, I mean, if you get into story archetype, but like the Joseph Campbell, you know, hero's journey. I mean, it really does follow mostly that archetype. Moses is one of my favorites. And uh-huh. it's really his, his calling. I, I don't know if that's really what you call it in the Old Testament, but when he first meets God out on, you know, the hill or whatever it is, like this is somebody who clearly God gets. And I think that's part of the message of the Old Testament is God gets each of us and keeps coming after us, if you will, coming to meet us where we are. But Moses even, like, it took, you know, a burning bush and turning a staff into a snake. Like, it took repeated times for God to say, no, no, I don't think you get who I am here. Like, let me show you get <laughs> And then even, even when Moses kind of gets it, he's like, surely you want my brother Aaron. Like, no, no, you got the wrong person. <laughs> like, okay, I know who you are, but no, no, this isn't my calling. Which I think, I mean, in reading some of your work is is part of what seems like the magic for you as well, which is like that story of, I don't know, kind of the unexpected leader. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think you hit on the key word is um, transformation. I think mm-hmm. God is just consistently choosing these people who don't see themselves accomplishing what he sees them accomplishing. And then what we see through their trials and through their successes and everything is God helping them become the person they need to be to do the thing that they that he has set out for them to do. You know, like you said, working, I know you coach people to help them through that transformational process. And I think the Old Testament is such a good guide, especially for people who want to know more about the Bible and want to be, you know, involved in the Christian story. If you're looking for good examples of transformation and what it looks like. I like the old Testament is the best place because you're going to see how dirty and how much struggle is involved in each um, transformation for each person. And it's different for, you know, depending on where they are and what they're trying to become and so on. But people think, you know, that the getting from point A to point B in life, that it's always, it's always simpler in our minds than it actually is. And I think the Old Testament is a great reminder that it's okay to have these struggles because they're they're an inherent part of that growth. Yes, and that the historical the historical aspect of it, like it's not like struggles now are new, but like mm-hmm. they were even more life and death. I mean, I feel like the Old Testament has that very gritty feel to it, if you will, and maybe that's part of what turns some people off on it because it. It is a hard read. And in the beginning, huh, what a funny way to start that. But like, but like there's all those lineage pieces and a lot of maybe the prophets people don't really resonate with. Because that is some of that's admittedly a really hard read. But I think what I love about what you're doing is you're digging into the, the stories of the people. And it kind of like you were saying with Professor Miller, it makes everything come alive. It really does. And I like your the description of it being gritty because the picture <laughs> that comes to mind is that 
I don't know if you watched The Walking Dead, but that's a pretty grim and gritty environment. And I feel like mm-hmm. there's not zombies in the Old Testament, but there's some pretty like horrible things that I would never want to be around during. Yeah, it's just yeah. It, there's that environment. That's super interesting, too. I mean, people love a good apocalypse story, right? Like, end of the world. Like, that's one of our favorite stories. <laughs> we do. We really do. What's your take on that? Like, is the Old Testament kind of an equivalent of real life people facing what truly was life it's life changing but it could be the end of the world i mean you've got plagues and mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a, that's a really good question i feel like i think it is feeding into the desire for people to read something fantastic not in an untrue sense but something that's so different from their daily lives and so the reason we're drawn to the Marvel movies and the DC universe, and we want to see superheroes doing these extravagant things, um, I feel like that is sort of the tone in some of the Old Testament. Even though it is this dark and gritty thing, we're seeing God do things he doesn't normally do for us. So like, mm-hmm. for the example of Job, this guy is complaining about how horrible life is, and he has his friend, and they're having this conversation and usually, like, things like that happen all the time. People are going through hard things, and they have people around them who are saying good things and are saying bad things. But to my knowledge, I don't know anyone who has had God come out of the clouds and answer them and do things <laughs> like that. Um, I think, for at least for the ancient reader, there was this draw to read the fantastic. And I think for the modern reader, we've lost that. We still have that desire, but we don't see it as clearly. And so that's one of the things I try Mm -hmm. to do in my writing is to help them see that if you know what is trying to be communicated, you're probably really going to like what is being written here. You just have to kind of work a little harder. Ooh, that's good. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Well, and, and there is, I mean, I think this is something really interesting to hit upon is that these are stories of humans transforming, doing kind of the impossible or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's, I feel like it's more relatable on many levels than Batman or well, maybe Batman's a good one because he's kind of a real guy, but I mean, a real guy. I'm yeah. going to have to take that right out of there, but <laughs> I'm like, he's a real, like he's, his origin story is one of like a real man who just saw something better than wanted to change the world. Exactly. But yeah. like, but I mean, if we look at Moses and some of these others, I think we see that the call or the invitation to rise up is often something that like you were saying earlier that this person is unexpected in this role and they don't even see it in themselves yet. That, that these characters or these stories are more relatable because these people are kind of regular everyday humans and we can see in them this reluctance to rise to their greatness. Exactly. I think the authors, um, especially in, in Genesis, they work hard to make the failures of man stand out. So the first opportunity that we see humans is Adam and Eve. Um, And the thing they're known for is how they failed in creation. And then we see their children. And the only story we really remember from Cain and Abel is that Cain killed his brother. And so there's this kind of line throughout Genesis and through the patriarchs. Abraham had his failures when he did things against God's way or he tried to play it safe and then that backfired on him. Stories of their failures is so prevalent. And I think that's important because for us, it it does make it relatable because we like to think that our failures 
or we, we tend to think that our failures are not the core of our story. We like to brush them off and say, okay, no, this was an oops and my bad, but I'm back on track. This is my story. This is the direction I'm heading in. And I think the genesis has kind of helped me personally seeing that, no, my my failures are as much a part of my story as my successes. And sometimes they have a bigger role to play in where I end up eventually. That's something it really does on a personal level is help you value those failures. Yeah, that was very well stated. And interesting that the setup is kind of that of difficulties of life. I mean, and, and that it's it's not totally optimistic, but is it kind of this nice realism to it that, you know what, not everything out here is going to be that easy and you're going to have some stumblings, you know, along the way. But then guess what? There's this myriad of quiet stories of people who then get beyond that first fall. We're talking about why we love the Old Testament so much. What do you think it is? Because I've found that people don't necessarily resonate with the Old Testament, even so much as the church itself doesn't always dig in and share these stories or get as excited about them as the, as the New Testament. What do you think's going on there? Maybe I think we can probably both jam on this one a little bit. <laughs> I have my ideas. <laughs> we definitely we definitely could because it's like. I actually came across a number. I wish I wrote it down. There's about 7,000 unique characters in the Old Testament and New Testament, and about 5,000 of those are just in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is just this gigantic, intimidating, thousand-of-year-old book. I feel like people, some of the books are easier to read than others, but people approach it with this idea that, oh, I'm going to have to do some work because this is really old and really big. And I think they let that intimidation scare them away from, you know, the treasure that's inside there. So something I've told people that would help them read the Old Testament is, you know, don't try to read through the Old Testament in a year. Don't get overwhelmed with all the stories and all the history. Just pick one book or one character and then focus on that one book or one character for an entire year. Just read through it multiple times, read books about that book or about that character. And that will just help you kind of cement yourself in one little piece of the Old Testament. And then from that perspective, so I've spent a lot of time reading Abraham. So then when I'm, when I don't understand something Old Testament, at least I can go, okay, how does this relate to Abraham or does it not at all? And then that can kind of help you make connections. Yeah. And I think that's helpful because it is even just in size and volume. It's an intimidating work. Especially if what you're thinking about is the, the lineage stuff. <laughs> or you start at Genesis and you're like, it's hard to have a relationship with with the book if you start in that in the very early stuff. I think it is hard. Yeah, I think you just worded it better than I've ever thought of it before. <laughs> <laughs> because because the reason like we can read through a Harry Potter seven book series or I love Space Odyssey, so I read these gigantic, you know, space books. It's because you do, you develop a relationship with the characters. And if you're not mm-hmm. doing that in some sense, you know, with the Old Testament, then yeah, it, it can be pretty tough to get through. Because it's hard to find the connection mm-hmm. if, if it's just in the beginning and the creation story. I mean, it's beautiful and I love it in its own way. But yeah, there's not a, necessarily the connection piece, which I think is in modern literature is what we're what we get drawn in with from my own standpoint the thing i've seen is that in some churches the old testament just doesn't get touched much and and 
in this, I mean Christian churches. I don't have, I don't have a lot of frame of reference for other <laughs> communities. But kind of at the bigger view, it's hard to see the, the kindness of God even in the Old Testament. And I, I think I've heard a lot of people even just say, well, it seems like God is so angry. And like, you know, it's just all this almost transactional, like people do bad stuff and so God acts out. I, I don't know if you have an opinion on if, on how that works or, or what you see going on there. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, first, about the church thing. So for people who aren't as familiar with the Old Testament, so the Old Testament is what we call the Christian version of the first 39 books of the Bible. And then the Jewish use a different, the Tanakh, and they use a yeah. abbreviated version of the Old Testament because I don't think it's all can- canonical. And then Catholics use a bigger version because they have extra books in there, from what I remember, I think three more. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about a very specific within the Christian church. Um, And we tend to think that, um, you know, Jesus is the answer to everything, which which I'm not downplaying that. But we think that if we just read the New Testament, then that will give us the full picture of God and everything we need for everything that the church wants to do in the world. But when you just think about the one thing is that what did Jesus read? And Jesus. (laughs) didn't have the New Testament. He read what we would call the Old Testament. Those were his prophets and the writings. And when you think about how he was explaining God, about how loving he was and about how, you know, just real he was to Jesus, it's because Jesus was looking at the Old Testament. And that was another thing that just helped me be like, okay, there there has to be something if all these truths are based in this old, old book. And then, like you said, you know, why does God of the Old Testament look so violent and just, you know, like a very angry person. I think partly it's to do with the situation that the Israelites were in. The God we're seeing in the Old Testament is very protective. He's like the, I think of the imagery of the mother bear. Of course, if some someone's going to attack her cubs, she's going to go all out, you know, with her teeth and her fangs and that gigantic bear body just barreling towards who's ever put her children in danger. And I think mm-hmm. what we've seen that, in the Old Testament is so often his people are in danger, either of, you know, losing their way or being attacked by other nations and just in lots of ways. So the anger we see in the, is actually the protectiveness of God. And then when we move into the New Testament, we're just seeing that communicated in a different way, but it's exactly the same God and it's exactly the same message. Yeah. I like that. I like that framing because I think it is about, a relationship, at least with, you know, our, <laughs> our humanity and, and our, our lineage, meaning of, of the earth. Yes. That would have been the early relationship. And like you're saying, if it's, if this, if God is like a brand new parent, mm-hmm. how does God relate to the creation? And, and I don't know. I mean, even if <laughs> we kind of get into more theology here, but even mm-hmm. if it's like, but like, it seems like, yeah, how God would try and interact. I don't know that that changes, but for sure the society and the people in it change. And maybe that's where the differences come out as well. Like we don't get it or, you know, collectively as 12 tribes running around, you know, fighting for our lives, we don't really get it. And so maybe we'd be eased into a relationship that was put out there. And now we're a little more confident in some ways. Yeah. What that looks like. No, yeah, I totally agree. I think, 
I like to use the word, even though some people don't like to use the word evolve with anything related to the Bible. But I think we do see <laughs> we do see God's relationship with man evolve as we move through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And that's not saying he's necessarily changing, but at the same time he is. And that's because humans are changing as well. We're changing the way we define temple and salvation and moving from God in charge of a nation to God of the world and how that opens up so many doors um, practically and theologically. Um, So what I see is, too, is that God seems to, it seems there is a very consistent God in the Old Testament, and then that same same story in the New Testament, but that God consistently presents God's self to people in kind of like what I was saying with Moses, but like in ways that only Moses would have understood or that in ways that would have caught his attention. And I feel like that's the repetition in some ways of the Old Testament is that we see a God that continues to interact and be present for his people. And then we see that he ultimately comes in human form. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think we get it. I don't think we can really get it. (laughs) Yeah, we we laugh at a lot of the Old Testament characters and we're like, how did they not get it and make all those mistakes? But at the same time, I feel like we're just making a whole new slew of mistakes and are just not getting it in completely different ways. I think just the more you study the Bible, the, the more comfortable you should become with being completely wrong about things. Because... Yeah, because, I mean, moving, like, in the examples of David and Solomon, they really thought that the things they were doing in their kingdoms was right and that there would be this physical kingdom forever, and that's kind of how they were defining all these biblical promises that were leading up to their kingship. And then we see that fall apart and dismantle, and then all this, you know, literature about, wait, everything we understood about the world and about God was wrong. How do we reconcile that with the things we do know about God? And I feel like, you know, that's something we have to do in our own lives as well. Sometimes we have to reach that point of, okay, I was wrong about pretty much everything. Now, how do I, how do I move forward in that? Right. Yeah. But yeah. And the, the story of Job, I think communicates that so well, because that, that's um, you know, the last book I've just spent a few months working on. And you see, you see this problem. I'm totally changing the subject at us. But we, see, <laughs> but we see the problem of pain and suffering. Like that's what most people think about when they look at Job right. and how that moves through all the discussions they have. But when you really dive into the book, there's the overriding theme is trust. Job wants to know, can I trust a God who allows this sort of evil to happen in his world? And then his friends are thinking, can I trust Job? Because when I see bad things happen to someone, I think it's deserved by them. And then at the end, God presents this ridiculous answer that doesn't make any sense. But at the heart of it, it's basically saying, you can trust me. You're not going to understand everything I do but you can still trust me without understanding. That's kind of the framework we have to go through is that trust has to be at the center of our reading of the Old Testament. And then the understanding, if it comes, can help us build that trust. But trust has to be the foundation, not the understanding, if that makes sense. Mm. 
Yes, that's very beautifully put. And you're right, because trust is key. There's something about being able to read the story and let it sit on your heart and then let it marinate and sit with you for a while. Some of these stories are so complex that at the first reading, you might just be met with the feelings of, I don't really understand these characters. I don't understand their society. It just seems confusing. But yeah, but then once it sits in a little bit longer, there's something really nice about what you just said about then that, that trust that the, the understanding will come. That's really, really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm just curious from your viewpoint, because you're, you're kind of involved in that transformational process with people more. What role does trust play in transformation? That's an excellent question. It's a big question. Yeah, it is. I think that trust, at least in the idea that transformation is possible. Mm-hmm. And that whatever thing you're facing in the now, well, that that will change. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that the trust is probably twofold, that the trust in the now that you are able to move out of where you are and the trust that where, where you're going will be better. I think it kind of works hand in hand. Yeah, I think you're totally right because there's that thing you think right now is the worst and that I'm totally stuck. And when you're in that moment, it feels totally real and like you are stuck. Mm -hmm. But I think having the faith and the trust to just sit through it and give it some time. And then in five minutes, it probably won't feel exactly the same. Yes. Yes. Because that is the worst feeling to feel stuck in my mind. That is just defeat at its worst. Right. And then there's the hopelessness that goes with stuck, which is also another a really hard feeling to sit with as well. And, I- and that's what makes people panic. You feel like there is no other way and I'm stuck in this moment and this is all that I have. And that's one of the things I work with clients on is how do I sit with this emotion maybe just for five minutes and then put it aside. And then later in the day or later I can come back and deal with it again for five or 10 minutes. But it's really about putting a container around how long you want to be in that feeling. Yes, that's so that's so good. It makes me think of um, the Jacob story when he's mm. about to go and face his brother, but before he does, he wrestles with the angel or however that is. And yes. just, yeah, that, that moment of, despair and hope and struggle all in one and then him coming out the other side with a new name and a new purpose i just yeah that's a beautiful example of that it really is and him being able to put his head around the idea that he's got this other stuff that he has to tackle before he can move along to the next thing that is gorgeous i love that one (laughs) it's so good (laughs) in escaping with jacob you skillfully address what uh, I would consider to be one of the more horrible stories in the Old Testament around Dina and her brothers. And you state that there's no real good outcome to these events. And I don't know if you want to explain the story to listeners if they're not really familiar with this passage in Genesis. Okay, so for people who aren't as familiar with the story, so Dina was one of the daughters of Jacob, and Jacob also had you know, the 12 sons. Dina goes off to this town 
we don't know the circumstances. Maybe she was going to party. Maybe she was going to, you know, actually get some food from the town or something like that. But anyways, while she's there, one of the rulers, the, the son of the ruler, takes her and takes advantage of her and then keeps her in her home. Word reaches back to the father and Jacob, and he basically does nothing, which if you look at his story, you think like he's probably the last person in the world who would do nothing. But for some reason, he doesn't react. Mm-hmm. Shortly, his two of his sons, who are Dina's blood brothers, find out what happened and make this plan basically to trick the people of that town into getting circumcised so that the men can't fight back. And then they go in and kill every single man in that entire town and steal all the women for themselves and then take their daughter back home. And then Jacob yells at them. He doesn't yell at them for murdering dozens of men. He yells at them for basically making him look bad. And it's just, it's a horrible story all around. And you're just like, what am I reading? You know, the issue here is there's so many issues that work. Like, why is Jacob (laughs) not being a good father? Yeah, like, and why are the people of the town acting like that? Why were the brothers so violent? Like, so many issues. So my my conclusion is basically that you have three options in events of suffering like that. And that's either to take justice, like the sons did, to show love, or to ignore the situation like Jacob did. You know, just kind of fleshing those out, kind of related to the Job thing. You know, Job wanted to know he had a God he could trust in. And I think every time we choose to take justice or to ignore the situation, those are times we're trusting in ourselves. We're either trusting ourselves to take justice because we know what's right in the situation, or we're trusting ourselves to ignore it and just move on and live life without issues, which doesn't happen. You know, the only time we pit trust in God or in something else is when we show love in those suffering moments because Dina didn't have love shown to her in the way she was, you know, abused in that town. And she didn't have love shown to her in the way her father didn't choose to react. And then her brothers tried to show their version of love when they were, you know, massacring the town, but that wasn't really loving her in the best way either. That was, the way they could make themselves feel better first and foremost. And so I think Mm -hmm. it comes back to when we are really deeply hurt like that, are we willing to still place that trust in God to say, okay, God, this happened to me and this was horrible, but I'm going to rely on you to make the situation what it needs to be. Whether that means bringing justice, whether that means remending the, relationship or something else entirely and that's hard that's easily the hardest thing i've ever had to do in my personal life and you know most people will ever have to do yes thank you that is a really lovely retelling of of the story and it brings to mind i think there's something in exodus uh, it's maybe 14 14 where god basically says be still and i will fight for you exactly that's- and I wonder if that's what this story is hearkening back to, um, as if to say, hey, you guys did a great job being human, and you did a great job of messing this up. But if you would just let me or time or space play out here, 
well, that there's a better way and that the knee-jerk reaction that we often jump to is not always the best way to solve something. Because I think you've mentioned it's probably ego-filled or anger or... Yes, that that's exactly it. I mean, we we have to learn to develop that idea that we don't always know best and that it's okay to trust God. And especially the Old Testament, it shows us that this God is fiercely protective of us. And if nothing else, he, he does want the best for us. We just have to come to a place where we believe that. And I'm, I'm saying that now, even as I fight him at every step of the way, sometimes just like, no, let me do things my way. Cause I know best. I know what I want, but it's, it's a process. And I think it'll always be a process. Yeah, I think so. And the other piece that I can never quite reconcile with this story is and I don't think this is something that you and I will come up with right now <laughs> on this episode, but what does this say about the story of Dina? Like, what does it say about her? Yeah, that that's one thing I don't know. And it's, you know, when you're reading a book or any book, um, you want to look at what's said, but also what is not said. And yeah. Dina doesn't have one line of dialogue through that entire thing. And that, I think that says something about the story too. Yeah, I definitely agree. It feels like one of those stories where we don't know what she thinks or, or says or sees, and it's on purpose. And it kind of reminds me of the story, The Red Tent by Anita Diamant that fills in the story from Dina's perspective. And it's a great book. It's totally worth the read. And it's this amazing story from kind of a feminist empowerment perspective and based on the premise that maybe Dina went into that town and she fell in love. And it really adds to the ending of this story that we assume we know, but that we don't really have a clear sense of closure to. Well, I'm definitely adding that to my reading list. Yeah, it's so great. Um So for the next question, let's move into something that's a little less daunting. Um, I know we talked about um, developing a relationship with a story or a character in the Old Testament. If somebody really wants to dive in, what do you think is a good book or story to start with? That's a good question. If they have a favorite character or a character's story who they always wanted to know better, just start there. And if they don't have one at all, I say start at Genesis 12 with Abraham and just read his story slowly. And his story goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 38. So it's about 26 chapters. Um, so you could easily read you know, half a chapter a week and that could be your reading for the year. And you would just get in his story in such a deeper way. And I would say take a look at the book of Ruth. Um, it's very short and it's a beautiful story about friendship. So if you're feeling really intimidated by some of the complexities of the other books of the Old Testament, Ruth is a great place to start. Yeah, Ruth yeah, Ruth is amazing and Ruth is so interconnected to everything. And so for your next project, I know you're working on a series of books. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I'm in the process of writing a series called Testament Heroes. And the first book in that series is Climbing with Abraham. It's a 30-day devotional series that just kind of goes day by day, and in some cases, just hour by hour in the events of Abraham's life. and just kind of helps you see 
his story in a much more realistic sense and how to apply that to your own story. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> That's so very generous of you. I know you said you were going to put up a special page on your website where people could enter to win. Do you want to explain how that works? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to be giving away three signed copies of the Abraham book. All you got to do is go to my website, the Ramos author, all one word, dot com slash joy. And you'll see the little entry form right there. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to get that book into the hands of some of your readers. That is awesome. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I will say I have read the book and it's very helpful and really helps break down the story in a way that's, and it has lots of thoughtful questions about how to, to use a coachy word, unpack the story so that it becomes more relatable to your personal life and how you can start to take the learnings of that story and apply it in a day-to-day way. Oh yeah, thank you for that. And your next book, Enduring with Job, comes out in just one week. So from the date that we're airing this episode, that would be February 16th. And in that, you talk about finding God's power in your pain. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit about how pain has played a role in your life and what this book has meant to you? That's good. Yeah, so, so I wrote that book having completely different intentions than the book that it ended up being. I think finding power in your pain relates back to what we've talked about, the element of trust. I think finding power in your pain comes when you find the things that you can trust in your pain. So in the practical sense, you know, when you see the relationships that are there for you, when your entire world is falling apart, That's a power in your pain. And when you are reading these things about the nature and character of God, and you're maybe you're not seeing him fix your situation, but maybe he's helping you in a way you didn't understand before, that's a power in your pain. And I think it's, yeah, it comes down to trust. And it comes down to being willing to be an imperfect human and still understand that you are worthy and that. God has immense plans for you and that this life, no matter how difficult it is, it's still worth living. Yeah. So that, that was a intense book to write. Um, I feel like I was basically writing it for myself, but I hope, I hope it really helps people, especially the ones who are going through hard times. And that's a really good tie in for what this show often digs into like the episode with Danny Wood, who lost his mother in 1999 to breast cancer, even in the midst of his pain, he started a foundation, he started helping other people. And in his song, Hold On, he talks about that, remember that there is so much we have gained. And I think the really hard part is that when you're in the middle of pain, it is so hard to recognize that there is something beyond it. But like you said, it's so much the story of trust. It's holding on to whatever you can right now in the midst of the storm, which is, of course, the story of Job. Knowing that when the storm has passed, you will get your feet back on the ground. And then when you really start to dig in around what what happened, that's when it really starts to get interesting. That's, That's it. That's it in a nutshell. It really is. Yeah, Job is a good one because boy, is he upset and boy, he's just 
just nothing goes right. I love that book. And I remember one of our professors, when I took biblical Hebrew, would, I think he said like 60% of the words in, in that book, in Hebrew, don't show up anywhere else in the Bible. I mean, you know, in the, in the Tanakh. Yeah. So it was a really hard one to translate. It is so different. It is such a different story that it, it's a challenge, both like emotionally, but linguistically, <laughs> which is interesting, right? It, it really is. It's like, it's like the stepchild of the Old Testament because it doesn't fit in historically with any other book. It just kind of thrown in the middle of this whole saga and they're asking really hard dangerous questions that the other ancient Israelites probably wouldn't have asked. And especially modern day Christians, most Christians aren't going to go up to the pastor and ask like, is God trustworthy? Is he actually a good God? Because all this bad stuff is happening to me. We just don't have conversations like that. And I think Job opens the door for really honest, painful reflections on how the world is and how life is and how we react to that in a human framework, but also in a Christian framework. Yes, because we don't necessarily rumble or wrestle with a lot of the really hard passages, which is fine at one level because we kind of need that ebb and flow. Because on the one hand, we have these really uplifting and I'll use air quotes, fun pieces of of the story. But then we also find these really hard passages That's so interesting. I love that you've pointed out that the story of Job is in the middle. I don't know, even like the Lenten journey, like we're to the point where the Israelites can no longer go back to Egypt. They also can't see the land of milk and honey yet. And they're really in the middle of the wilderness. And Job is kind of also really in the middle of that wilderness. I think think it was so fitting for some of the trials that they went through. You know, in my mind, I see them going back to the book of Job just constantly throughout their history and just being like, okay, things aren't going the way I, I need them to go, but it's okay. We still serve a good God. And however this ends up, I'm going to be okay. I might not be as healthy as I want to be or financially stable as I want to be or X, Y, Z, but I am a human under God's protection. And that means something. Right. And the thing that really strikes me too, about what you're saying, about how we don't always have the framework to have these discussions. Interestingly enough, one of my favorite passages is the moment when Jesus cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And I think it's because of some of these same Job-like reasons. It shows his humanity so thoroughly. He knows his entire trajectory. He knows what has happened and what is promised and who he is. And even he calls out in that really desperate moment because it seems that he feels God is not as close as God actually is. And there's something so powerful and moving in that to me. It's like the entire agony of being human in just one second. I don't know if that's the same thing Job was doing, but that one moves me every time. That's such a perfect parallel. And it's so it's so painful when you pit yourself really in there and really read what's going on for Job, but also, yeah, for Jesus in that moment when you understand like he 
he's in all of this suffering and in all of this pain, but he's communicating the human condition in the sentence, like you said, and it's, it's heart wrenching. And it's so human. And yet there's something about it that gives me great hope because even someone who knows exactly what his path is, can't fathom in every second what that struggle is about. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, in both the story of Job and the story of Jesus, something good happens at the end. You know, Job (laughs) gets double everything, and then Jesus comes back from the dead. And so there's this inherent hope that after suffering, there is an after suffering. And sometimes we don't always believe that, especially when we're in the midst of it, that we can't peek our head above the horizon. But when we do, when we remember that, you know, there was before this pain and that there will be an after, that is another place where we can find power. Thank you. That was so well stated. Okay. And so now let's move into the last two questions. If somebody has a big dream that they want to bring into the world, what would your advice be on bringing that dream into action? As I kind of think back to how I've brought my own dreams into action, it all comes down to just try things violently until something sticks. And so like in the last three years or so, I did online courses. I had a YouTube channel. I wrote for a host of different websites. I just kept going until something really stuck. And I had this passion for the Old Testament, but I didn't understand how that could communicate into my you know, everyday life. And so once I just kind of saw that I do want to write and I do want to write on the Old Testament, it just kind of unveiled itself into what it is now. And so, yeah, my advice for the people who maybe haven't found that thing yet is don't give up because you do have that thing and you just have to keep trying things violently until you find it. And when you do find it, it's it's going to be like turning the light on. Yes, I totally agree. Once something just clicks and it fits, you will just know it. Yeah, along those lines, one of the things I think is so important is that your joy is going to take a lot of work. Like, Mm. I read some of the most boring books about the Old Testament sometimes, and I'm just like, what in the world? But I still love it. I find gems in these huge tomes that no one would ever pick up, but... When you have that joy, don't be afraid that it's going to require hard, you know, pull your hair out work sometimes, but that's your joy is going to motivate you to do that. Last and most joyfully, what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world and in other people's lives? Yeah. So this is basically just repeating myself, but I think the three ways you do it is you've You just try new things until you find what you want to master. The second thing is spend your entire life mastering it. And then the third is to find a way to share that mastery with community. So I'm, I found my love for the old Testament. I'm going to spend my entire life reading it and I am writing books to try to share that love with other people. I love it. I love that you've added community into that because Mm, I love that. I love that you've added community because the Old Testament really is about community, both personal and that relationship of a people with their God. Exactly. And, you know, your passion for helping people transform, I think, 
the fact that you have this podcast is such it's such a good tool. I know I since I found you, I've been listening to it every week and it's just like, yes, <laughs> like, yes, every time I turn on the new episode, I'm just hearing these people say the things that I've felt and that I heard in my own head. But now I'm saying, OK, there's there's this whole community of people who have actually found what they love and it's possible to make your life so much bigger than you imagined it. Thank you. I'm so glad you listen. And I found it to be very interesting as well. What I really love is that so many of the guests have really actively chosen to follow joy, even though they have faced some things that are really hard and difficult. And the truth is we've all been through really hard things. And so each person's story helps give context and clarity and explains what the larger joy is for all of us. David, thank you so much for joining today and for taking the time and generously offering um, some copies of your book. It's just been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on here. I really appreciate what you're doing and I just commend all your listeners. I encourage them to keep pursuing their joys. Thank you, David. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, David, for spending some time with me and letting me nerd out over the Old Testament. It was such a total joy to get to talk about some of my favorite stories and a real pleasure to be able to speak to you about them. So if you are interested in signing up for the giveaway that he's doing, just head on over to his website, which is ramosauthor.com slash joy. And you'll see a little sign-up section there. And thank you again, David, for being generous with your books. If you're inspired by the stories of the people that I've talked to and you think you might like to work with a life coach, if you would like to find things that light you up and bring you more joy, I would be so honored to be on that journey with you. If you'll go over to the website, jumpstartyourjoy.com, and look under the tab labeled coaching, you'll find a form there, and I would love to be in touch. Okay, and so for next week on the podcast, I have a very special interview with the internet sensation T-Rex Tuesdays. Maybe you've seen them around the internet in the last couple of weeks. This is a pair of Tyrannosaurus Rex that have been known to ice skate. They've granted Jumpstart Your Joy an exclusive interview and it is nothing short of hilarious. So please come on back. It's it's really an unusual piece, and I think you'll just love it. There is certainly nothing more joyful than speaking to a dinosaur. So <laughs> until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.